Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Out-of-home media has seen tremendous growth in recent years. Much of this can be attributed to the proliferation of digital signage and the convenience of purchasing inventory via programmatic platforms. We have come a long way from manually placing posters in transit shelters. And today's guest, Stephanie Gutnick, is helping to accelerate this change. Stephanie is the Global Chief Strategy Officer at Billups, a leading global out-of-home tech company reinventing the way brands and agencies approach planning and placement. But a career in advertising wasn't part of her original life plan. Stephanie had her sights set on broadcast journalism. That is, until a summer internship left her second-guessing that goal. After graduating from university, Stephanie took a role with News America Marketing's Montreal office, working on direct mail couponing and in-store media solutions. From there, she moved to Broadside, working her way up to VP of Business Development, and with it, a move to New York City. Stephanie would go on to hold senior roles at Outfront Media, Verizon, and Yahoo. Stephanie Gutnick stops by to chat about growing up in Winnipeg, studying in Montreal, working at some of the biggest players in out-of-home media, and the difference between working in Toronto and New York City. Billups is a global out-of-home technology and managed services company that's really reinventing the way brands and agencies approach out-of-home with data-driven insights and measurement. So as the global chief strategy officer, my role involves shaping the company's strategic decisions and direction, obviously, uh, ensuring that our initiatives align with market demands and really maintaining our position at the forefront of the out-of-home industry. Steph, thanks so much for dropping by today. We're going to go back to the beginning, and I think you are the very first Manitoban I've ever had on the podcast. This is episode <laughs> 85, and it seems like everyone is Ontario, a little bit out west, or international. But So you were born and raised in Winnipeg, correct? That's right, and it's an honor. I hope I don't disappoint the prairies when <laughs> they listen in. All of Manitoba, I think there's like 1.3 million people in the entire province, and they're they're listening intently. You're leading probably. for them. Yeah, this is probably Saskatchewan. So this is your audition if you want to be premier one day. (laughs) What was life like growing up in Winnipeg? It was truly magical. Uh, As you know, when you're a child, you live in and learn from your environment. You just don't know that anything else exists. So I was raised in a really loving family and I had great friends and a wonderful education and experienced the pure kind of life that the prairies uh, really do provide. And um, it's the enjoyment from those simple moments and the values that were instilled by my parents uh, that really keep me grounded. So even when I was working in Manhattan and even working in the ad tech industry, uh, I really credit my prairie roots for who I am now. When I was doing my research for this episode, I'm going to admit I didn't even know that there was a Lake Winnipeg, but I went to Google Images to look at it. And my God, the beaches there are beautiful. And you spent a lot of your summers on Lake Winnipeg, correct? That's right. It's really nice that you did your research. I uh, I worked for a little while at the main hotel on Lake Winnipeg in a town called Gimli, uh, where I was a server. It was right on the water. And, um, you know, I thought that seeing the northern lights uh, late in the summer was an experience that everyone had. Okay. I didn't even know you could see the northern lights from, yes. say, Winnipeg. Like, if you had said Churchill, Manitoba, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. I thought you had to be a hell of a lot closer to the Arctic Circle for that. You can see them. It's a beautiful experience. What were your interests or hobbies growing up? Pretty much what they are right now. 
So reading, writing, dancing, playing piano, a lot of travel, and a lot of dessert. A lot of places are a particular you dessert. dessert. Eating a hobby, that is my number one. Okay, so what dessert keeps you busiest then? I mean, if we're talking about Canadian things, I feel like Nanaimo bars would be an appropriate response, but I'm not too picky. Did you have any influences you looked up to growing up, like any inspirations? Yeah, growing up, uh, my parents, I know that's cliche, but truly I looked up to them. And actually, as I got older, I have a younger sister and I look up to her as well. Uh, but, you know, typical role models of a 90s baby, um, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, the Olsen twins, were my idols. Has it shifted towards Elizabeth Olsen? Because you hear <laughs> a lot more about her now than you do. I didn't even know she was a thing until I, mean, I had heard she was cast in a Marvel movie. I'm like, oh, there's a third one? She's a great actor, but the Olsen twins are now in fashion. They've done very well. Uh, I can tell you that uh, who I look up to and find interesting has definitely shifted as an adult. So I still respect them, but I don't uh, idolize them. It's strange that a lot of things from the 90s no longer exist now. Like I was talking to a couple of people about it. And actually Heather Gordon, the head of ACAST, she used to work at Much Music. And mm -hmm. we keep talking about how like this generation right now, you can hear my dog right now making a cameo in the background. <laughs> a lot of young people don't realize that a lot of the artists and music artists that we looked up to in the 90s, you could get close to them through something like Much Music. That doesn't exist anymore at all. It seems like it's just shifted to another track on your Spotify playlist rather than something a little bit more monumental where you owned a CD, like something like physical media made it that much more important. That is so true, though. Do you feel like social media engagement provides that different way to feel close to, you know, your, your idols? I think I learn a little bit too much about them where it's like, OK, keep your opinions to yourself. It's like mm -hmm. clearly you read the headline in the news and didn't read the article. I, sometimes they take crazy stances and it's like, yeah, just stick to making music. Yeah, they could have stuck to promoting their music and out of home and then you wouldn't know too much. Your first job ever was babysitting like many people on the podcast. Was it family members, other kids in the neighborhood? Oh, I had quite the babysitting business in the neighborhood. So were you incorporated? I, <laughs> no, no, not at that time. But uh, I really couldn't wait to start having that kind of responsibility and making my own money. And that really, it flowed into, I've done a lot. I scooped ice cream at the town that I summered in in Lake Winnipeg. That's also where I worked as a hostess and a server at that main restaurant um, in Winnipeg, there was a designer denim boutique where I worked in retail. I also worked in shoes, which is retail, but <laughs> um, I was also a barista. Uh, I interned, I volunteered. So I'm a, I'm a really big believer that these types of jobs develop organizational skills, people skills, empathy, and learning what it takes to make a dollar, you know? I'd also say dealing with stress as well. Retail uh, and working quick service restaurants, my God, you've got to think on your feet. And when something goes wrong, I don't want to say it's catastrophic, but it's as catastrophic as the customer will make it to be. True, true. You learn from a young age how to provide customer service, which serves you well the rest of your career. Yeah, you hate being reminded, though, that the customer is always right, because sometimes the customer is wrong. <laughs> and you can you can acknowledge that and and figure it out, right? 
oh, I used to work at Sears Liquidation, and I can tell these stories now that Sears doesn't exist anymore. And some of the crazy things I would see, because it was liquidation. So we would get all the scratch and dent merchandise or the stuff that was just so ugly retail didn't want to sell it. And people would come up to me and be like, you're selling a refrigerator with a dented door. And I'm like, yes, that's why it's in the store. <laughs> well, I want a discount. I'm like, it's already like 800 bucks off. Like no one buy, will buy it. It's ugly. Take it or leave it. And then they start demanding a new door. And it's just like, you're it. You want a, do you want a new fridge? Go to retail. Like don't deal with us. Some really, really interesting cast of characters. Did you find that when you were in retail as well too? Like, let's say you were at the designer denim shop. Did you oh, find yeah. that pe people walked in expecting H&M prices, even though it wasn't H&M quality denim? Oh, no, I loved that job. It was <laughs> the boutique was run by um, by this woman who was just so fabulous, and she really treated her staff well. And she made the boutique very cozy. And we'd listen to Jack Johnson and Elvis. And um, when people came in, I think my biggest takeaway from that job was um, you learn the type of salesperson that you are. And I, if somebody was trying something on and they had a question about it, I could never just be like, oh, yeah, it looks great. You should buy that. Um, it was really, especially because this was jeans, if they were unsure, it was a nice challenge to have to find them a brand or a style that they just felt really good in so that they weren't leaving with something they bought that maybe they wouldn't wear after. So I really, that was my favorite part of working there. After high school, you packed a bag and you moved to Montreal and you attended McGill University. So what attracted you to McGill rather than say staying and doing, uh, doing your undergrad at the University of Manitoba or the University of Winnipeg? I can't tell you exactly what it, uh, it what it was. I just, McGill was my only option. It, I, I applied to the University of Manitoba just in case I changed my mind. Good to have a backup, but I truly only applied to McGill and I received a scholarship. So there was really no looking back. Um, I have always loved French. I studied French at Université Laval in Quebec City the summer before I entered grade 12. And I just fell madly in love with Quebec. And, you know, McGill is considered the Harvard of the North. So I'm obsessed with its reputation. The campus is just so old and, and gorgeous. And I wanted to go into broadcast journalism at the time. So I did a poli-sci major and a communications minor. And um, following that, while I was at McGill, I did an internship at CTV Montreal. And the whole experience was just incredible. So your ambitions in broadcast journalism, was it going to be focused on covering the political beat? Uh, I think it could have been anything. I just find it so interesting to go in there and learn different uh, perspectives on a story and, and figure out what to be sharing with an audience. And so I loved that element. Uh, it didn't really matter what I would be reporting on. Okay, there's a rumor about McGill University that you've got to clarify for me because it was mm -hmm. going around about the university when I was in university. And it was... During an annual general meeting of the students' union, enough students showed up for quorum, and they put a motion forward to change the name of the student center to the William Shatner Student Center, and they were able to do that because everyone voted in favor of that, or the majority did, and apparently it made administration so mad because William Shatner, being a McGill alumnus, hasn't really done anything for McGill, and so they thought, why is he getting a building named after himself when everyone else has to, you know achieve something more academically or donate a chunk of money. And so apparently the university administration refuses to acknowledge the building on university literature as the William Shatner Student Center. I have no idea. 
uh, we might need to ask a McGill representative about that question. Uh, what I can tell you is William Shatner spoke at the convocation the year that I graduated and he has this one line, anybody from Montreal would get it, but he says something along the lines of the road to life is not straight like Sherbrooke, which is the main street, uh, one of them in Montreal. You know, and he kind of says it has its ups and downs and twists like Cote de Neige, which runs through the mountain a little bit. And I just, I love that quote. But did you get a chance to rub elbows with uh, Captain Kirk after? I've, oh, I've never met William Shatner. But if he's listening, that would be great. He better be listening. <laughs> I'd love to have him as a guest. Uh, we'll follow your... up with him and then we'll see what I can do. <laughs> I'll send him a tweet or an X, whatever they call them, <laughs> call them now. And so what was your first job then after graduation? Upon realizing that I didn't want to go into broadcast journalism, which is a whole other podcast, um, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And that was... You know, that's a confusing experience when you are getting ready to graduate. So I applied for an opportunity advertised through McGill's Career and Placement Services Center, and I had my job secured prior to graduating. I worked for News America Marketing, which is a division of News Corp, in their Montreal office for two years. So you could say that News America was really my introduction to sales. I was in ad sales there and media and marketing and what we now call retail media. And I worked on new and existing business, selling direct mail ads and coupons, as well as in-store media. And what was brand new when I started, online coupons that could be printed at home. And admitting that to you makes me feel much older than I should. Were they downloaded as PDFs and printed off or was it something Absolutely. you could actually show on your phone? I was and old we school had to figure out, um, you know, means of of making sure that people weren't getting into fraudulent couponing with any photocopies or the like. So it was really early days, but feels good to say, you know, I was there when. Did it excite you, though? Because on one hand, you were starting off getting into journalism, so a lot of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And then you shift over to retail media, which is incredibly important, but it's almost like there isn't really that much of a story behind it in the same way there is with journalism. Like it's kind of kind of a pretty big pivot. It's interesting because I think that to be a good salesperson, whether you're selling a product or you're selling an idea or whatever it might be, um, you have to be a good storyteller. So for people who are figuring out what they want to do with their lives, who might be listening right now, it's, you know, if you have passions there's not always one way to follow that passion that might be the most obvious. Sometimes, you know, and hopefully you can apply them to other types of roles. And that's what that's what I ended up doing. How did you refine your sales craft? Just because sales seems to be that one facet of business that maybe gets touched on in, in a university uh, program, but it doesn't have its own concentration. Like you go into you go and do an undergrad in business. It's like, oh, I specialized in marketing or general management or finance or operations or HR. But there's nothing there for sales, even though it is like the cusp of everything at a company or it's it's literally the major revenue driver. So I felt I found that when I got into sales, I was trying to grab whatever I could. A lot of uh, I wouldn't say there was a lot of reading, but a lot of observing from my my successful peers. Yes, I do think that sales can be learned. There's a skill set that can be learned and refined and, and watching people who love what they do and are good at it is a really great way to go about it. 
Uh, but in terms of me, I think part of it is just I was born with this curiosity where, you know, I ask questions. Oh, what are your, what are the problems you're looking to solve? And also I have an inclination to learn about the person and see what we might have in common. So developing, you know, a genuine relationship with a prospect or with a client, as well as, you know, having that real desire to help them with whatever you are you know, what's ever in your portfolio, uh, that is where it comes from. And also my family, like we just talk to everybody. So I think just naturally, I grew up in an environment where we were not shy about engaging with people and developing just a natural connection. So that's where it came from. But of course, to your point, when you uh, can learn from people who have styles that are similar to yours, or maybe totally different, but you like them, that's another great way to build your sales acumen. What brought you to Broadsign? Did mm-hmm. you find the role or did the role find you? So what was happening is, again, working in actual ad sales was amazing training. And what I learned from that, though, in addition to how ad sales works, is that I was more interested in what advertiser and agency clients were strategizing. So I found a role in marketing at a company downtown Montreal that sold digital signage software, uh, which was an entirely foreign term to me at the time. But I ended up, um, you know, I started within the marketing department and wound up running the marketing department. And the whole time I was just like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do what I love. Do you ever look back and go, thank God I'm in out of home advertising now versus say, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when there wasn't an abundance or even any digital signage whatsoever. Cause I remember working with people who were in out of home and I'm going, my career spans, I guess the last 16 years, but I remember talking to some people out of home, they would talk about how hard the sell would be because it's like, Oh, will we get the poster put up in the transit shelter in time? Or if it's a timely poster, do we have other inventory coming in? That's going to replace it because I've got a couple of stories where I've been standing at a bus shelter and you look at the movie and you're like, oh, okay, this movie comes out March 30th, but it's June. (laughs) And it kind of felt like when digital at a home and not even digital at a home, but programmatic digital at a home came about, it it felt like it was a major turning point for that for that medium. So I'm an out of home opportunist about all formats. (laughs) And uh, I say that because it's not easy. The entire space, there's so much that goes into it, particularly what you're talking about in terms of traditional, you know, print, vinyl, out of home. That's not the digital screens. That has so many parameters around it. It's a very difficult sell. What's happened with technology advancing, particularly in the past few years, and to your point with programmatic, it becomes much easier. But the people who plan it, and this is why I'm so proud to be at Phillips, really have so much expertise about what's going to go into a successful out-of-home activation based on KPIs. And that takes significant knowledge. But I think, again, regardless of the complexities, even if we were 30, 40 years ago and we were just dealing with traditional out-of-home, it's just so iconic you know, a billboard in a certain place that has a classic kind of ad on it. I just, I love the idea of out of home and its impression that it has on people. So your career is on the up and up and you decide to hit the pause button to go do your MBA at Harriet Watt University. 
what brought you there? Why Edinburgh? Okay, so I love that you think that I hit pause because... Oh, you were that- doing this concurrently? <laughs> I I did the two at the same time. So around the time that I joined Broadsign, I was accepted into a Master of Political Science at McGill. And I knew that I wanted to further my academic education, but I deferred the program by a year to give Broadsign a try. And after this year, I realized an MBA would be more helpful. So it was the VP Finance at Broadsign at the time... He suggested that given my role was global, that I seek a university abroad, which was such a great call. And yeah, I um, this was a time too where my travel with Broadsign was uh, was intense. I was opening an office in China at one point, and I remember just sitting on the plane studying for exams, and uh, it all worked out perfectly. Um, and and I'm happy I did it. <laughs> Did you get to spend much time in Edinburgh? Because it sounds uh, like you were doing a lot of this correspondence. That's that's right. It's uh, the university is two hundred years old, but very advanced in terms of their flexibility. So I spent a li- just enough time to find my favorite dessert spot. How about that? <laughs> Was it a deep fried <laughs> Mars bar? No, it wasn't. But there is like a Mars Rice Krispie square that they make actually, and it was phenomenal. Okay, you didn't do the deep fried Mars bar when you were there. No, I've oh had them. Oh my god! Oh, it's, <laughs> it is absolute divine at the local. Because I went to university, I did grad school in uh, Scotland as well in Stirling, and I used to bring it in, and they'd roll their eyes at me, thinking I was an American. And they're like, "Oh, the American wants fried Mars bar again." It's just like, here we go again with that. But okay, here's another rumor was that you got to clarify. Scottish accent. That was kind of my half-assed Glaswegian accent. <laughs> it works because it's definitely it's definitely different from the Edinburgh accent. Far more refined in Edinburgh. Mm, true, true. Okay, so Harriet Watt University. Did you hear the rumor about how the, the name of that school inspired Hogwarts? No. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was. I doing... guess I'm just not much into gossip. Go oh, on, teach me. No, this was actually on um, a, a walking tour of Edinburgh. And what they do is they they infused a lot of Harry Potter, because when I was over there, I want to say they were on Harry Potter five or six at that point. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing the walking tour and they they walk you by the cafe that J.K. Rowling uh, wrote most of the series in. And then they they tell the story, too. I don't know if they're really embellishing at this point or trying to make it more dramatic, but they tell you that she couldn't afford to keep the the heat going. So that's why she used to do the work in the cafe. But they take you around and they take you to a um, they take you first to uh, a cemetery and they won't let you walk through the cemetery because apparently it's so old that there's just fungus and disease and whatever. And they're just kind of like you don't want to disturb the ground. They're like, if you go in there, stay on the path. But they point out that apparently if you get in there, you can find some of the gravestones that are either identical to Harry Potter character names. Like apparently there's a Thomas Riddle buried there and, or they're very close to it. And then when we were in the cemetery, they pointed to one of the uh, Harriet Watt buildings that was in the distance. And they said, Harriet Watt university sound familiar to anyone? Of course, everyone's like, no. (laughs) And they're just like Hogwarts. And they're like, that's supposed to be the inspiration, not necessarily for the school, but at least the name. Wow. Thank you so much. It's Look at me just dropping this knowledge. You can, <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you were doing that concurrently. You graduated, and then did your promotion to VP of Business Development come after graduation day, or were you literally juggling a promotion while still working on your MBA? Well, there were multiple promotions throughout the years there uh, while working on the MBA. Um, 
But right around the time that I graduated, I moved to New York to open Broadsign's New York office. And uh, so I, I can't quite tell you exactly when the promotion happened, but I do know that um, I had to ask for it. <laughs> so anybody, again, to the listeners, don't be shy. Sometimes you do have to just put out what it is that you want. Isn't that strange? Um, just to pause yeah. there, isn't that strange yeah. when sales reps don't ask for a promotion? I mean, we're paid to go around and ask people for money. Oh, and it's I, and it's like we won't ask for something for ourselves. I think there's a lot that goes into asking for things when it comes to your own benefit as opposed to somebody else's. Oh, I get um, that but, I'm completely oversimplifying it, but I just <laughs> find that a lot of people are very shy and it's just like, well, take a step back. What what value have you contributed to the company? Like, can you actually make a logical case for that? Like, I'm not saying that anyone listening to this should be like, you know what? I need more money. I'm just going to go ask for it because that, that's not the way it works. I think a good rule of thumb and Broadsign's owner and CEO would would say this to the team is that you need to prove you can do the role before your title changes. So you know, for that curiosity, it's okay. The first step is if you are shy about asking, just ask what the role would entail that's different from your current position and start exploring, okay, are these tasks that I can do? And then maybe, you know, I'm just assuming maybe people don't ask because they don't think that they can do it. And if you start breaking it down and realizing that you can, maybe you'd feel more confident about saying, okay, when's my time? Your move to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so was there any sort of culture shock when you landed there, especially coming from someone who spent I still a majority of your life in Winnipeg? Yeah, at that time, you know, having been raised in the prairies and Montreal and Quebec have a very different culture to what you find in Manhattan as well. Um, but it's in my DNA. Like I was destined to live in Manhattan, I walk very fast and I just respect how that city runs. And I have a really cozy apartment in the Flatiron District and just embraced everything about living there. And, um, you know, while my role at Broadsign had always been global, opening an office in Manhattan solidified the company stance in the industry. That was really exciting to be part of. And, uh, for my own personal brand, it gave me that pedigree as well. I got very involved with different associations like the Ad Club of New York. And, you know, as they say, if you can make it there, right? Did you play tourist when you landed? Um, I had been there so much in my life and leading up to that moment that there wasn't, well, I could say it in two ways. I knew the city by that time, but in New York, you can play tourist every day, no long, no matter how long you've lived there. There's just always something new to experience and explore. When you went to New York for the very first time, did you find it surreal in a sense that you see a lot of these landmarks in film and television that sometimes you become blinded to the fact that they're real? You start to think like it could just be a Hollywood backlot somewhere, or just a set. Like I, that's the way I felt when I saw Times Square. Like. I obviously knew it was real, but the first time I saw it, I think I was maybe 14 or 15 years old. It was just in awe. I was just like, oh, okay. This massive scene that I remember from Ghostbusters, because that's mm -hmm. what I kept bringing it back to was the movie Ghostbusters, because that was kind of my introduction to to New York through cinema. And I just couldn't believe that this was actually real, that they had actually shut down this block and filmed a movie here. I love that you say that. We were very similar age when we first went to New York. I went in grade nine as part of a performing arts troupe. 
So we went to a lot of Broadway shows and we learned choreography from Broadway dancers. And it was a very, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I think one that resonates even more is uh, my, my family would come to visit me all the time. And one, they would come during the holidays. We loved that. And at one point, uh, I was working in the Chrysler building because I was working for Outburn at the time. And it was all decorated for the holidays. And uh, my dad was, you know, meeting me for a minute. And it was a fun experience to say, you know, he grew up in Winnipeg too. And I was like, did you ever think that you'd have a daughter working in the Chrysler building? And so that was, that was one of those moments for me. So you just mentioned Broadway dancing. Are you watching only murders in the building by any chance on Disney plus? Isn't that an incredible love letter to just New York, especially New York in the fall? It's so good. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's probably why when I start a season, I can't stop. What is your favorite musical then? My favorite musical? Hmm. That is a really tough question. Like one that you could go see over and over again. That's how we'll, that's how we'll qualify it or quantify it. My family saw Jersey Boys when we were in Chicago years ago. And the whole experience around it, I just, uh, I love the music. I love the show. So let's go with that one. What's yours? If you get a chance, take in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I actually saw that in New York and I saw it when I came back in Toronto, but I'll also give an honorable mention to uh, the Book of Mormon. Oh my gosh. I should have, I should have gone with that. Book of Mormon's fantastic. Can I, can I change my response? <laughs> my family Consider saw that changed. one in Montreal. <laughs> that is a good one. <laughs> you know what I got to give credit to the Mormon community in Toronto? Cause when I saw it there, they actually bought an ad in the playbill. And it was just funny. They just said, look, we hope you enjoy it, but this is what we're really about. Come explore what Mormonism is all about. And it's just like, you know what? That's nice. They're not going out there with signs trying to cancel people. They're trying to find a tasteful way to say, hey, you know what? This is what we're really all about. And at least they can laugh at themselves a little bit if they're they're putting that in the playbill and actually paying for it. I was going to say, isn't it nice that advertising provides the opportunity to educate We've literally gone from like static out of home to digital out of home. And I didn't even think we'd be talking about playbill advertising, but the benefits (laughs) of that. Okay. So you mentioned that you moved to Outfront Media and it was in the Chrysler building. So what brought you there? And you were their VP of digital strategy and programmatic sales. So that sounds like a mouthful and it entailed quite a bit. So what did that encompass? So over the course of my career and really so at Broadsign, um, I would poke at a gap or an unexplored opportunity and put the puzzle pieces together and, and learn what I could. And it positioned me in a place where um, programmatic was just in its early stages and I became fascinated with it. And so Outfront brought me on into a newly developed role that was meant to establish their programmatic offering. And the people there and their business were and remain so exciting uh, to be part of the media owner side where Outfront has iconic inventory, um, New York subway, for example, and Times Square. So I still smile when I pass Outfront billboards wherever I am, Toronto and Montreal, now that I'm back in Canada. Uh, but when I'm traveling in the States too, it just always makes me happy. Okay. So you mentioned that this was a newly created role. I find these roles interesting because 
depending on what's already there, you're coming into it and you're building everything from the ground up where they've already got a pretty good idea of what they're expecting from you, or it could be a bit of middle ground. They're like, we think we should go this direction, but we need you and your expertise to fill in the gaps and point us point us towards success. How was it when you landed there? Like how much of the role had already been fully fleshed out before you started on day one? The leadership at Outfront uh, really trusted me and I trusted them to develop something new. And uh, I think going back to the conversation that we were having about, you know, a, a genuine curiosity as to how things work and asking questions and trying to figure out how things could be optimized, that is what I was, that was what I ended up doing. And it was just so much fun to go in and work with a team to develop something new. And uh, there was a lot of education that had to be done on on programmatic and I think you know I'm I'm doing I'm just about done a doctorate at this point so I think part of my love perhaps for academia comes from the fact that I just like absorbing information and then sharing what I find interesting with other people so it was so much fun to take the time to help educate the outfront team about programmatic and how they can be using it. From there, you moved on to Verizon Media, which eventually would be, would you say, sold or acquired by, I guess, a private equity firm and then rebranded as Yahoo. But take us through what that was like, because I think a lot of people listening to this would be surprised to hear that Yahoo and even Verizon Media were in the digital out-of-home space. I was at Yahoo for two and a half years, and their chief product officer at the time it was Verizon Media recruited me uh, to establish their global digital of home offering uh, across their programmatic tech stack. So um, it was an amazing opportunity. I, I was kind of thinking to myself when that was all happening, like, this is the moment that I've been waiting for because out of home represents about 5% of advertising spend globally. And I know I'm biased, but if I look at it objectively, where out of home really, it performs well um, in double digits. That's where you can start measuring and looking at uh, results across upper and lower funnel KPIs. Um, so I believe that out of home really deserves to have double digit percent spend uh, globally. And I thought that by being part of an omni-channel environment where uh, the salespeople could offer and clients could tap into out of home in the same platform that they were buying their other media uh, would really be that moment where out of home would start just accelerating. Okay, so let's bring this full circle then, because your subsequent role is your current role. It's Billups. Yeah. So did that role find you or did you find the role? That was also destiny. And uh, again, it's it's a newer role. I was able to apply my learnings from being in this omni-channel environment. Uh, quite honestly, what I've realized is in the out-of-home industry, we really want to make out-of-home seem simple. It's so easy. And the fact is, we have now established features um, and capabilities to be able to do what other channels can do. So if a media buyer is interested in, you know, planning their audience and doing certain targeting based on demographics or whatever it might be, if they want to optimize their campaign while it's running, 
if they want to look at, I just mentioned it, but measurement stats, you know, at any part of the funnel, this can all be done with out of home. So it's very apples to apples in that way. But as I said earlier, there's this knowledge about the space because it's profoundly a location-based medium and there's so much runway when it comes to creative potential. It's very helpful for advertisers who have not experienced out of home in the past to lean on uh, expertise. And so Billups has just enabled me to be in a place where I'm working with a team of media colleagues who have been in the space for a long time or they're new, but they're learning. And uh, they are so um, thoughtful about what they can do that's either super innovative or is just going to work and going to make the brand so proud and going to make consumers uh, be so interested or so informed. So it's a really, it's an exciting place for me to be right now because they're very focused on combining that expertise with technology that's truly um, at the forefront of what out of home can do. So you would say there's a lot of educating behind, uh, behind not just this role, but every other role you've had as well, because when I look at the out of home landscape and I do not know it as well as you do, but just what I've heard anecdotally from my friends and I've got friends working at astral media. I've got a couple of friends too working at Broadsign, and they're having a blast working there. Mm -hmm. It seems like you've got this group of out of home buyers and planners who were slowly moving into the digital landscape just because instead of it being static media, it became digital media. And then Instead of buying it direct, it became programmatic. And then on top of that, I've also heard that the programmatic teams who were usually dealing with like display buys on websites or connected TV buys or anything like that, they're now being entrusted with some of those dollars. So it kind of seems like, I don't know if I had to put it out there, it'd be like some sort of like Venn diagram where it's like, here are your, prog here are your programmatic buyers and planners, but then here are also the I guess you could sort of say traditional or experienced out-of-home buyers and planners, and they're kind of overlapping with each other. And so there's probably a lot of knowledge that needs to be imparted. And it's so interesting that you say that because in general, I think there are just misperceptions about out-of-home and what it can do. And I've mentioned that before, but in, in marketing and advertising as a whole, uh, the industry will go through different phases and trying to learn, you know, how best to engage with the modern consumer and just people in general. And so when it comes down to that, like sometimes people will consider out of home to be a brand only medium and will reserve the medium just for brand purposes. But there's a few, you know, issues with that kind of thinking. One is we can now prove that out of home does drive lower funnel behavior. We can look at return on ad spend with sales. Um, we can look at apps that were downloaded, TV tune-in. These are all possibilities, right? So out of home is proven performance marketing. But then also there's this movement towards believing that the two can be done hand in hand. We're seeing, was that possible? Uh, I spoke there in April and um, the CMO of Ally Financial was talking about brand as performance. And that's the kind of thinking that we need to adopt um, because, and this is part of my studies, but you see it elsewhere, there is a direct positive correlation between upper funnel. Um, so whether it's, I trust this medium, I trust this ad, or, you know, I'm, I'm considering purchasing it 
if people have movement on that front, you can see a direct positive correlation with uh, an actual purchase, right? A purchase intent. So uh, there are a lot of synergies between the two and implications of one on the other that I'm very happy uh, to see marketers start to move in that direction. It's not one or the other, it's both. And how do they do that in a way that's elegant and responds to their KPIs in an efficient manner? So yeah, it's education um, within the out-of-home industry and then within the advertising industry as a whole. And that will never stop because people and their habits will continue to change. So that's that's why I love this business. What I've always liked about out-of-home is that it's kind of the advertising industry's answer to modern art. Like it really can be treated like an art form. I remember years ago, someone at Astral had closed a transit deal with Coors Light. And what they actually did was a transit shelter at Young and Dundas, a streetcar transit shelter. And they literally had put, it, it was all plastic, but it looked like a snowstorm had just hit that, uh, that transit shelter. And like, I'm not a big beer guy, but that made me thirsty. And even in the dead of summer, just staring at it made me feel like a degree or two cooler. <laughs> like there was just something about it. And then anytime the forced perspective videos pop up on uh, LinkedIn, I'm always watching those. Like I, I spoke to Amanda Dornberg about them when she was, uh, when uh, she was on my podcast two years ago, she said, look, you've got to be looking at it from a, a specific angle to get the full function. But little things like that. And something that I don't think at home gets a lot of credit for is a lot of subsequent earned media that comes with these executions, like on social media where people are showing off, hey, there's this execution in one transit shelter in Toronto, but that Coors Light ad is being shared then with the rest of the country, let alone the rest of the world. You are totally right in that regard. Um, my I've heard out of home be referred to as a hero channel. Uh, and I also say that it plays nicely with others in that it really does bring media synergies. So to your point on erd media, if you see a really cool campaign, you're inclined to take a picture of it and perhaps share it with your friends on social media and the pickup that it gets organically through social uh, you're able to share that one specific location and moment with people all over. And it just, it's a beautiful, uh, as I said before, synergy between the two. You know who predicted forced perspective advertising? Who? Back to the Future Part Two. Uh, I'm going to lose some popularity when I tell you that I've not seen this movie. Back to, okay, the Back to the Future trilogy is so perfect that it should not be rebooted ever. Like that should be considered uh, a crime against humanity. Like in an era where we're rebooting every film every five to 10 years, it should be left alone. If I can find that clip on YouTube, I will email it to you after. But there I is a to it. But there is a scene. So basically what happens is Michael J. Fox's character goes from 1985 to the year 2015. And it's just funny to see what they think 2015 is going to be like. And he's walking through his town. And then it's more of a hologram than a forced perspective video, but they're kind of half joking that like Jaws 10 is coming out now. And it's a giant hologram of a shark that's coming down and it's about to eat him. And he's freaking out and everyone on the streets looking at him because they get it. They know that it's just an ad. And it reminds me so much of the forced perspective video I saw on LinkedIn, where it was a sub, I think it was in Japan. It was a subway entering the station. And then it looked like it was just going to pull right out and onto the crowd. I'll, I'll send that video to you, but it's, it's one of those, it's another example of how writers are able to predict the future. Wow. <laughs> I, I will be so curious to see this. Okay. So you've had a series of promotions throughout your career. 
if there's anyone listening to this that's just jonesing to punch above their weight and get into a new role at their current company, what advice would you give them? Well, somebody not too long ago asked me for similar advice. And the first takeaway is you're going to have to kind of do what feels right for you. But what I think has worked for me is that uh, you want to be respectful, or I have, be respectful of the people and processes that are in place while you're turning over the rocks um, to identify, you know, opportunities and raise your hand to be considered for those opportunities. I would say uh, know which leaders you wish to emulate and why. Be mindful of those you don't and why. I had mentioned relationship building before. Definitely establish meaningful relationships and connections. Doesn't matter how many people you know, it's about the ones who, um, who you really can connect with and learn from and teach. And then I would also say learning how to think critically, working collaboratively, and um, it's just being observant. It's knowing when to crack a joke. It's working very hard. And uh, there are also the elements that we cannot control, like timing and luck. And I'm still learning that unpredictability is what makes life special. So (laughs) I'm actively trying to embrace that. But truly, if you put those factors into it, the hard work, the being um, thoughtful about what it is that you're doing, then the moments of serendipity pop up when you least expect it. And that's what gives your career the next push. And currently, you're also working on your PhD. Take us through that a little bit. Like, how far along are you? What was your dissertation about? So I am set to graduate at the end of the year, which is very exciting. Um, Everything has been done, and now I'm just waiting on that date. But I'm studying the advertising effects of connected television and digital out of home. And the advertiser that ran the research with me is actually Gooder Sunglasses. They're based out of L.A. In the four years that I've been working on this, they went from a company that I knew little about, but when I first started wearing their sunglasses, I immediately fell in love. And uh, at this point, in every city, really, that I'm in, I just see people wearing them. And I feel like, you know, I didn't really do anything to deserve that, but I feel like I was part of that development because I watched them grow up. Steph, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Let's get at them. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. Okay, so I think this is one of the most memorable because it's the first digital out of home campaign that I really experienced uh, in the industry. So it was back in 2013. It was a digital out of home campaign for Mini that was done by JC Deco UK. And digital billboards would tell Mini drivers to turn at the next gas station they were on the freeway they'd see the digital billboard and it would say hey turn at the gas station for you know a dinner or something and then you'd see a video of people being given you know a, a gift card or actual meal and they had many other gifts and fun things like that but to see the delight on drivers faces and that special moment of connection that was totally unexpected that they've just had with the brand it really resonates and also to know just how manual it was to execute at that time. And we've come so far because uh, that would just all be done dynamically now. Um, 
And then also another JC Deco campaign uh, in Australia, this was years ago too, but they ran a campaign to raise awareness about the benefits of dancing for Parkinson's disease. And uh, my opa, which is my grandfather, he recently passed, but he had Parkinson's and uh, when he could, he loved to dance and we would dance together. And so the campaign just has a really important place in my heart. Your favorite movie? That would be The Parent Trap, um, but Lindsay Lohan's version. And I can defend this choice. It was a big part of my life growing up. My family loved it. It has a great soundtrack and it's a feel-good movie and I stand by it. No one's judging you. Don't worry. (laughs) And it's funny that you say it's a Lindsay Lohan film because I think I remember it more as a Jamie Lee Curtis movie. Oh, that is Freaky Friday. Oh, God. Oh, okay. You got me there. Freaky Friday. (laughs) The parent trap is Dennis Quaid and uh, Natasha Richardson. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Okay, so this is totally wishful thinking territory, but that would be, speaking of Harry Potter, that would be Emma Watson. And I like her because she's an Ivy Leaguer. Uh, She also seems very curious and... um, classy and someone who marches to the beat of her own drum uh and similarly if it wasn't emma watson it would be sarah jessica parker uh, because she also seems very warm and grateful and curious and she has great shoes and she designs her shoes my follow-up to that if hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story what would you call it it would be called eat pray love and work would they be weighted equally (laughs) well like the eating dessert part would be most of it but no it's uh i I think they all go hand in hand if you strike the right balance your favorite book so these days i read a lot of nonfiction. um i'm very happy to be over reading academic articles that consumed a lot of my time and uh they are very interesting but nonfiction, particularly the stories behind businesses and their founders i love that So I'm currently reading Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. He's the founder of Shake Shack. Uh, But my favorite author would be F. Scott Fitzgerald. And The Great Gatsby is my favorite book. Your favorite song? My favorite song. Anything that I would listen to growing up. So Life is a Highway by Tom Cochran. Very Canadian of me to say, but that's just, it's so good. Um, Stars by Simply Red. Don't Worry Baby by the Beach Boys. I have the nostalgia of someone much older than I am in numbers. So it's that kind of that kind of music that gets me. Best advice you have ever received? Before I started my internship at CTV, my parents told me to be myself, which at 20 years old, I was like, yeah, obviously, you know, um, but truly it just is so applicable uh, to your career. Like, and, and everything that we do, I love just be yourself, be authentic, and it's all going to work out if you're true to who you are. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Well, I would be a broadcast journalist <laughs> just because it doesn't happen in this life. Uh, uh, at the core, again, it's just about, for me, it's learning and communicating my learnings with others. And I'm very lucky because I can do that in the career that I've had and in my current role. Uh, But if I didn't have this role that I adore, uh, yeah, I'd be a, I'd be a journalist. Steph, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was fun. 
That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.